Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with John Thomas. Today it's May, tw- uh, May 2nd, 2023. We're at Thomas Vineyard in Carlton. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, first question to get things rolling is why wine? Uh, good question. Um, my background was geology. Uh, that's what I have a degree in. And not even a week out of college, I was about an hour south of the Yukon River in a construction camp. Um, working on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. And uh, so we'd basically, half the pipeline, the whole pipeline, 800 miles to half of it's on permafrost. And they realized after a couple years in design that that the oil temperature is about 120 degrees. It was going to melt, sink, and so they couldn't bury the whole line. So we were hired as geotechs, and our job, basically, we We'd sit around a drill rig all day, 10 hours a day, seven days a week. <clears throat> and based on what was coming out of that particular augered hole, we would design a piling that would fit in there, and then you'd have a saddle, another piling maybe 10 feet away. And so you had an H shape, and the pipeline would sit on that. And so it would be above ground, and all was, all was well as far as keeping it away from the permafrost. Um, so, yeah, we'd just go out every day and stand around a drill rig, and this, you couldn't call them pilings because you'd have to hire the pile drivers union. So they were called VSMs, which was short for Vertical Support Member. And that's where we learned that there was a kind of a corporate way of looking at things, and if you, if you tweaked it in the right way, then you could save a lot of money. So. Um, but anyway, after one summer of that, and I was working night shift, which was kind of fun in a way, but you can only take so many pictures of moose in ponds, you know, moose half in pond, moose out of pond, uh, sunsets that were four hours long, basically, during the summer. Um, and then it got towards fall, and you have the northern lights, you know, so it's a, a pretty good job. But like I say, a lot of, lot of hours, we'd work um, eight weeks straight, 10 hours a day, seven days a week, and then you get a two-week R&R. So uh, to break up the monotony after a couple months, it, it you know, was getting a little monotonous. So uh, we decided we'd start doing, I started uh, fondue parties on Friday nights. And I uh, didn't really know how to make fondue, but I knew wine was involved. So we managed to, we were close enough to Fairbanks, uh, we could find some wine. Because the little town we were next to has a population that fluctuates anywhere between a dozen people and 30 people. And uh, so not even big enough to have wine in the general store. So we'd go down to Fairbanks and, you know, the parties got bigger and bigger every Friday night. And we'd have to have more than one bottle of wine. So we started comparing, you know, we go, hey, this is, this Chardonnay is much different than that Chardonnay. And, and so then it became, it kind of morphed into sort of quasi-wine tastings more than fondue, because we were terrible at making fondue. <clears throat> um, then the, um, after three years, pipeline ended, and uh, followed a girlfriend back to Denver, Colorado. Um, 
she wanted me to, I thought, move in, but <clears throat> once I got there, I realized our relationship hadn't quite congealed to that point. So she said, well, you need to get an apartment. I thought, well, okay. And there was a little liberal arts college, um, not unlike uh, Linfield, that was maybe about a mile and a half away. So I got an apartment close to that, and I would walk over every day to my girlfriend's house, and I happened to go past this pharmacy. And one day I went into the pharmacy, and it turned out it was half wine shop. So I'd pick up a bottle of wine, and a lot of her friends were musicians, and so I ended up staging uh, wine tastings and underwriting a lot of the costs because these musicians were kind of, you know, <clears throat> didn't have solid 40-hour-a-week jobs by any means. Um, anyway, so that became, that sort of piqued my interest in wine and I got to the point where I was thinking, because in Alaska I had an offer to work in Saudi Arabia and I thought, well, I'm going to do a little homework so there were some guys there that had worked actually in Saudi Arabia building pipelines um, in the 50s. And I asked this one guy, I said, you know, what would you, what would you take? You're kind of limited in the amount of clothing and gear you could take with you. And he said, well, and the most essential thing is a piece of rebar about 18 inches long. And you put that in the hip pocket of your Carhartt coveralls. And I thought, you know, there must be some strange exotic animal I don't know about that you need to beat off with a piece of steel, concrete reinforcing steel. And he said, no, no, it's actually, you'll be away from your pickup truck and a sandstorm will come up and you won't have time to get back to your truck. So you'll just get on the ground, pull your shirt over you and just to filter the air out. <clears throat> and then once the sandstorm passes, if you go back to your truck and try to touch the door handle, you're going to get a static spark about that long. And so you ground your truck first before you even touch it. And after a story like that and a few others, I said, I don't think Saudi Arabia is my cup of tea. So <clears throat> followed my girlfriend to Denver because I knew a lot of oil companies and um, there was a lot of geology going on in Denver at that time. And also there was the Colorado School of Mines close by. So I thought, well, <clears throat> you know, I dabbled in this wine but thing, but it wasn't really something at that point I thought I could make a living in. But I was interested enough to come out to the West Coast, and I went, started kind of on Vancouver Island. And I'd already looked at climate charts and whatnot, and, and Vancouver seemed kind of interesting. Uh, right around, there's an area around Duncan, which is kind of the banana belt of Vancouver Island. And uh, the problem was you had to have, uh, all, all the wine sales were through government stores, and you had to have, at that time, 40 acres, which I thought was out of reach financially and physically. Um, so that was, that was kind of off the map. And then uh, Eastern Washington was a little too hot, although I looked at, there's an area around Lake Chelan that I had visited when I was I was backpacking the Pacific Crest Trail in college down through Washington, stopped at Lake Chelan, and I thought, hmm, you know, this is a very scenic spot, and I knew it was plenty warm on the east end to grow grapes, but I wasn't sure about in the middle. So I looked up the frost freeze data, and it turned out the latest frost was something where, like, July 20th, and the first freeze was something like July 25th. And so you had a five-day window, but nah, that's not going to work. <clears throat> so then I came down to Oregon and kind of knocked on doors and, and just asked people, because I had this idea of 
I wanted to do something like four or five acres like you do in Burgundy and, and do it all myself and have a small winery and I just didn't know if that was a viable size economically. So that would be my question. I would, you know, buttonhole people like David Alsheim and Myron and and usually, you know, take a couple bottles of wine over and say, I'd like 20 minutes of your time, if you can spare it, or I'll give you wine or, or pay you whatever you feel you need. And I just have like five or six questions. And, and one of them, the closing question was, you know, can I make a living on five acres with own vineyard if I make a lot of my own, build a lot of my own equipment and, uh, and do all the work myself? And, and David Alsheim said, well, he said, maybe, maybe 10 acres. And, you know, you might need a little help here and there, but yeah, and that was doable. And then I continued down the coast, and by the time I got to anywhere close to Napa, Sonoma, it was, it was like three million, and you're going to need 40 acres of grapes. And I was just, I was about ready to just say, back to geology. This was an interesting, you know, side trip, but uh, it's not going to, not going to work. And the last guy I was going to talk to was a guy named Ken Burnap, and he was in the Santa Cruz Mountains and it took me half a day to find him because this is pre-internet and so you would be winding through these little river bottoms and then you'd see a road that would go up and you'd i went up like half a dozen driveways that <clears throat> were not his driveway apparently but you'd get to the top and you'd come out and you'd be in you'd come out of the fog and you'd see a vineyard here and then you'd see another vineyard over there you know you, you they were just like a half a block away seemingly but to get there might take you several hours you'd have to go down and back in the river about bottom <clears throat> um, but anyway he had a, a gravity feed winery that he'd built himself he'd been in construction and uh, so he did basically like we're doing here he crushed down the roof he had a few more levels because he had a bottling level and uh, so I just that 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 visit saved me. It's uh, kind of reinflated my dream, and I said, you know, here's my background. If you were in my shoes, what would you do? And because I was tinkering with the idea of going to Davis, and I knew nothing about growing grapes or making wine, and uh, and he said, well, he said I just start working for people, and uh, he said you'll learn from their successes and and failures. He said you already have enough chemistry in your geology background that that's no problem. So just start working for people. So I went over to Davis because I was still thinking about that. And I what spent... Year was, what year was this? Oh, gosh. This would have been 1979. And I spent about two weeks at Davis, go in there every morning. I was just camping out, go in there with just pockets full of quarters and dimes. And I would just go through all their... Most of their information was um, in French or German. I, I, could read a little German, but nothing in French. But uh, I wanted information on rootstocks, particularly, um, because I knew that the rootstocks they used in California, like AXR and St. George, were just, the vegetative cycle was way too long for Oregon. So there were a number of books, and uh, as soon as I saw, you know, a number that's like 3309, 3306, 101.14, I knew I was on the right track, even though it was all French. And I, so I would immediately take out some quarters and I would copy, you know, reams and reams of paper and figured, well, I'll learn French later and I'll translate all this <laughs> once I get to Oregon, right? Um, so this went on for like a week and then 
one time I was in the hallway and this guy said, he said, we've been noticing you here a lot, um, but you're not a student here, so what exactly are you doing? And it was Rich Cushman. And I said, well, I'm thinking of going to Oregon and growing Pinot Noir. And he said, well, as luck has it, I'm from Hood River, and that's where I'm going as soon as I finish my degree. And then he found out I was camping out, and he said, well, uh, some other guys and I are sharing a house here in town. Why don't you just, you know, forget driving 20 miles every day and just stay on the couch. And so I did that for a few nights. And so the guys in the house were uh, Rollin Souls was one of them. Uh, a few other people that I've since forgotten um, ended up in California. But uh, so through those connections, I got my foot in the door at Con Creek Winery. And I worked down there in Crush 1980 and uh, <clears throat> learned kind of the nuts and bolts of winemaking. Um, actually made a little bit of, made a, like a quarter barrel of Pinot. Just, they, had, they sold grapes to Domaine Chandon, which they'd pick in, oh gosh, early August. But they'd always miss a few, so I asked the owner if it'd be okay if I went out there and gleaned some fruit. And so I did that and made a quarter barrel of Pinot. So worked there through harvest and into the winter and then spent a little bit of time in the vineyard because I wasn't sure, I'd never been in a vineyard myself and I didn't know what was involved and for physically what it was like. So we were on, we went out, I remember one day it was about 92 degrees and two in the afternoon or whatever and they would always put me next to the road because I was the only Caucasian guy and the guys working farther up the hill were less and less legal to the point where the guys closest to the woods were pretty dicey as far as their citizenship. So if the immigration bus came by, the idea was they'd see me and think things were okay. And if they didn't, at least the guys close to the woods had time to hightail it out of there. <clears throat> so, but anyway, it got so hot that afternoon, um, they said, everybody go home, we're calling it a day. And I thought, well, okay, I, I can handle that heat. So then I got a hold of Rich again, and he said, well, if you want to go up to Oregon, um, this fellow Bob McRitchie I know pretty well, and he's the winemaker at Sokol Blosser, and so I'll give, him, I'll give you his phone number. So I called Bob, and he said, yep. He said, we need some people. 95% um, chance we'll have a job for you. So packed everything in the car, headed north, and um, got here, Bob said, well, we've, we've canceled night shift because the crop is so small this year. And I, I thought, night shift? What are you guys working night shift for? And he, then it come to find out they would run their press 24 hours a day instead of hiring two crews. So without enough grapes, they shut that down. And so I, I had already rented a place to live, and unpacked everything, put everything in a storage you store it and there weren't that many wineries around I mean there was there was Newts and Erath there was Tualatin um, Zari um, a couple others and even then this is 1981 even then David Lett was pretty much an icon and I just couldn't quite screw my courage up to go over there and, and see if he needed people that after two weeks I realized I don't have any money coming in, you know, and we have to do something. So I went over there and he was 
he had a sledgehammer. He was knocking out some concrete on his crush pad so he could get a press in there. And this was about, oh, like 10 days before people had to start picking. And I said, well, do you have a crush crew lined up? And he said, no, I'm, I'm thinking about it. And I thought, what an odd way to run a winery. But uh, evidently he called Bob McRitchie, I guess, later that day. And then he called me back and I checked out. So he said, you've got a job. And so I worked there for oh, three weeks until we ran out of fruit. Um, but every day <laughs> before harvest, and the building didn't have any windows, you know, so he would go to the go to the door and he'd open it and he'd look outside and it'd be dripping. And he'd say, well, maybe tomorrow, you know, and this went on for like a week. And I, I'd never seen rain in Napa. Back there, I heard stories where if it, if it rained even eighth of an inch, panic ensued, you know. And so I was starting to wonder about A, Oregon, and B, David Lett. <laughs> Um, but finally, after about a week, he opened the door and he said, I think it's going to clear tomorrow. I think we'll pick. And we picked. And, um, but then one day we paid, I guess it was, it was on a, on a Friday. They just paid the pickers a day early, which I guess was a mistake because they went out, purchased beer. We're in no shape to pick the next day. So Joel and I picked some Chardonnay and I remember putting it on the, on the truck, he had an old 1940s flatbed, and it was getting dark, and we just thought, well, we're not going to drive it all the way into McMinnville. We'll just drive it around the road up Brayman Orchard, put it in the barn overnight. So Joel says, you know, if you take it slow, and he said, you know how to drive a, a truck with straight gears? And I said, yeah, you just clutch, you know. I said. So I start going up the road, and trucks got a you know 1940 old engine and we only had like a ton and a half of Chardonnay in there but that was heavy enough that the truck started to stall and then by the time I downshifted and found the gear popped the clutch I could feel the truck suddenly getting a lot lighter <laughs> and we turned around and there was a ton of Chardonnay in the road and we spent another two hours shoveling that back into these smuckers picking bins and uh big wet spot on the road. David never said anything to me the next day. I thought he was going to maybe fire me at all. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so we ran out of grapes and he found me a job at Tualatin. I worked up there, finished up harvest, and in fact ended up working, gosh, uh, another two harvests at Tualatin, 83 and 84, and one in between at Elk Cove in 82. Um, and in the meantime, I'd worked at all these various wineries and gotten to know some people, so I started a little wine tasting group. In fact, we had it the second year I planted the vineyard, we had it right at the bottom there. Um, Alan Holstein was in it, um, Alan Sally Holstein, Bill and Julia Wayne, Mark Benoit, who started Oregon Vineyard Supply. Um, Mark actually he looked at the vineyard, it was the first time I'd had anybody over other than Bill Wayne to look at the vineyard and both both Alan and Mark were vineyard managers and I remember Mark looking at the vines and looking at the spacing and he said you know by next year he said you're not going to be able to see the rows in July they're just going to grow in on on one another because uh, back before I 
purchased this, um, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, before I purchased this, I'd gotten interested when I was still in Napa Valley in Burgundian spacing. And I'd had some, some Oregon wines even when I lived in Denver that were fairly, fairly light. I think that was more the climate than the, than the grape trellising, but I thought, well, you know, on visits to Oregon, I haven't seen anybody that's, that's done a Burgundian spacing. They're talking about growing Burgundian varieties, but, um, and maybe the winemaking is Burgundian, but there weren't any vineyards that looked like that. So I thought, well, what if I, you know, instead of the nine by six, I do something, this is a meter and a half by nine tenths of a meter. So it's a little over 3,000 vines to the acre. And at that time, um, gosh, in the 80s, nine by six got you something like 800 vines to the acre. So it's pretty dense. And uh, so I wasn't sure what was gonna happen. And I found this particular spot, because I had been looking for a couple years. I think everybody does that. You know, you get on the limestone kick. I had the whole map of California, the West Coast, every speck of limestone marked out. And then you find out that if the limestone is like far enough away from town to a point where there's no concrete plant next to it. Then it's so hot, like uh, where Shalone is, you know, that's... Um, so limestone was kind of out. There's really none that I could find in Oregon. But uh, So I did that for a while. Um, there was a little vineyard outside St. Helena that I... Um, Sterling. And I would go up there on Sundays off when I was working at Con Creek because they had this little showcase vineyard that was meter by meter. And occasionally you'd run into these and invariably somebody had a rototiller and that's the only way you could cultivate or do anything. <clears throat> but so I would go up there on Sundays and they had Zinfandel apparently growing and it, and it was all raisined up. And so I would take raisins and I'd throw them in my granola for the rest of the week. And I went in there finally one time on, on a Monday and found the vineyard manager and I said, I said, I'm really curious about this little vineyard that's meter by meter. And I said, you know, when was it planted? And, and he said, well, Zinfandel. And I said, well, what does the winemaker think of the fruit? And he said, the winemaker hates this vineyard. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, it ripens, ripens before Chardonnay. He said, well, they're still processing white varieties. They don't want just a small, you know, 10 ton lot of red coming in because they're not prepared to handle it. So he, he hates it. He, we just let it dry up to raisins and it's just kind of something for the tourists to drive past on their way up to the winery. And so I told him, I said, well, I'm thinking about growing grapes like this in Oregon. And he said, well, that might work. But he said, here, he said it ripens too early. So I thought, hmm, okay. And then I got up here and asked like Dickie Rath, he had a his first vineyard was over on Dop Road. It was on Willikensee soil, which is what this is. And he said, well, that was my, actually, that fruit was my favorite fruit from Willikensee. And I, I didn't know if it was the climate or, but I attribute it to the soil. Because I was looking for something that was fairly shallow. Um, even though our climate's much different here than Burgundy, we don't, you know, get any, we probably won't get any more rain until September. And in Burgundy, it might be raining every week until September. Um, so there was that, but I thought if I had jewelry soil, that was just too much water and the vines might just grow rampant. Um, and so I was looking for Willikensee and it took me 
gosh, two years to find something. I ended up this place just found on a fluke because I wasn't looking in the Dundee Hills at all. I knew it was jewelry soil that was going to be too deep. And um, but my friend Bill Wayne knew the farmer over here where Ambar is going up, and that fellow could look over here. And at this point, back in the 80s, this was at a Italian prune orchard, and the fellow that farmed over there said, well, the guy had seemingly been working it for a couple years and he might be interested in selling. Well, Bill told me this and I thought, no, it's the Dundee Hills. It's going to be, A, it's going to be the wrong soil, Jory. B, it's going to be sloping off in the wrong direction to the north and it's probably going to be too high. And so, but I, I thought, well, just to humor him, I'll get out my topo map, pulled it out and I found, oh, it's this little ridge that's sticks out and it's got a southeast exposure which is what I was looking for and then I got out the soils map and I found wow this is all sedimentary soil pretty much from the Bonneville power lines uh, this way it's all sedimentary soil so it was the right soil and it was the right elevation and the guy wanted to sell so yeah I bought I figured I was looking for five to at the most 10 acres and this was a little over 25 and I thought I thought this is way too much land I'm you know I'm either going to go bankrupt it's going to be a binary thing either I'm going to go bankrupt or I'm going to be successful in which case I'll have a big buffer against my neighbors and I can plant out more if I decide to but, uh, so yeah I wound up with it and I had some cuttings I'd made from Bill's Vineyard at Abbey Ridge that were down in Corvallis uh, to Friends Farm so I hauled those up and gosh, a week after we closed the deal, I was planting vines here and put a little travel trailer like everybody did back then at the bottom of the vineyard and got frosted the second year. Uh, we had a Mother's Day frost, which we hadn't had anything that severe up until last year. Uh, so yeah, the first, gosh, three years, I, rode it, I had a diesel Italian rototiller, single cylinder, rope start, they would just about, you didn't have it at top dead center when you pulled that rope, it would just about, you'd feel your arm, your shoulder be sore for a couple days. But um, after, what, 1987, Drin came in, and I thought, well, you know, this, this area is going to take off. And I thought, I'll, I'll use that to justify buying a small tractor. It was still a little tight, but it worked. And uh, yeah, so first vintage was in 1988, and I made that at Cameron Winery. I had a an old um, it's a bulk dairy tank that was 2,500 gallons. So I cut that in half. And another neighbor who's a good welder showed me how to you know, weld some legs on it, and so I made two two uh, jacketed insulated wine tanks that each hold probably about five tons so we can pick that's that's one of the luxuries I wanted to have one was to be able to pick everything and in, in to have the fermentation capacity to handle all the fruit so you weren't constrained by weather or having to you know get a fermentation done and get those grapes out so you could load it a second time I wanted to have enough space for everything and I also wanted to have a barrel room where everything was on one level because it's 90% of, of what's going on in a wine you can tell just with your nose. And so just when you're topping, you know, you just take a little sniff, just pull the bung, 
and you know if you've got a problem or not. Um, so, yeah, some of the equipment I've managed to, to build, like a hedger, because when you're this small, and back then, Oregon Vineyard Supply, would, they were selling equipment, but there was really nothing in the way of a, a good small vineyard tractor. So people would get, oh, once Druen came in, uh, and people started tightening up their row spacings, then people would get these John Deere 750s, and they would have them cut the axle at great expense. You know, it was like a third the cost of the tractor just to cut the axles and squeeze them in four or five inches so you could get down these rows. Um, and then Oregon Vineyard Supply started selling these Ferrari tractors that were gorgeous. They were, um, they were articulated and but they had a phenomenally odd gear range. They had about, gosh, I think like 20 gears, and only two of them were usable in the vineyard. The top speed was something like close to 40 miles an hour. And I asked somebody who was Italian who had a winery, and I said, I said, why are there so few useful vineyard gears? You know, because when you're rototilling, a lot of the a lot of the things you do in a vineyard, you're, you're going at a speed that's barely faster than walking. And I said, well, why do you need a 40 mile an hour tractor? Well, he said, a lot of these guys, they don't have a barn out in their vineyard. They, don't, they live in town. And so if you leave your tractor out in the vineyard, somebody will steal it. So you drive your tractor, that's your car every day. So <laughs> they worked great for that, but as vineyard devices, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so. Uh, first vintage was in 88, and then 89, um, 89 I did it at what's now, it's Shehalem, it was Veritas. In fact, I worked at Veritas um, when Rex Hill opened in 1985, Bill Wayne and I, well, everybody in the county went to this new winery because they had just opened, and it was... It was a fancy winery, let's put it that way. Everything before that was built with practicality in mind and not, it wasn't a show place. But this, this place, you know, the doors were, I don't know, 12 feet high and Persian carpets on the floor. They had barrels full of wine off the tasting room, glass bungs that disappeared quickly for the next couple months. People were pilfering those. And, uh, but it was really a beautiful winery. and. I was going up the stairwell with Bill Wayne, and this I started conversing with this other fellow. Well, it was John Howison, and he had just built Veritas across the street. He needed a an assistant winemaker, and so I worked there for two years, and uh, also worked at Nick's Moonlighting. You were, you know, doing many different things at that point just to keep gas in the truck tank. Um, so I had I had wine made there <clears throat> and previous vintage and I didn't have the the winery wasn't finished at that point I didn't have the barrel rooms they were years later um, but I hadn't poured concrete on the top I'd run out of money thought I had enough from, say from Alaska but it turns out that wineries are more expensive than you know it's about everything takes twice as long and three times is as expensive as you think um, so um, I'd heard about this place down the road, the Trappist Abbey. I heard that they were getting out of the furniture business because they'd been building church pews. 
And I went down there just to check out this rumor that they were going to be storing wine for small wineries. And um, the abbot, I can't remember his name, um, but I, I told him, I said, I'm here. You're, and then they had a huge warehouse with nothing in it. And I said, I hear you're planning on storing wine for small wineries. And he said, yes. And are you a small winery? And I said, yes. And he said, do you have wine to store? And I said, yes, I do. I have about 10 barrels of wine and some carboys. And, and I said, but it's, it's not bottled, it's bulk wine. And I, I don't think that's going to be legal to do. And while I was explaining this, he goes into his file cabinet and he pulls out this form and he signs his name here. And he says, just, he said, how many barrels do you have? And I said, 10. And he said, well, how many cases of wine are in a barrel? And he said, I said, 25. So he does that and a couple of carboys and he writes 263 cases. And he says, sign here. And I said, well, I still don't think this is quite legal. I don't think you can. he said, he said, let me worry about that. And uh, we'll send you an invoice at the end of the month. So I was their first customer. And I would go in there, usually with a carboy of wine about every couple of weeks. And walk the length of that building, which was no easy trick, um, top up the barrels, and, and usually I would meet, there was, one, there was one monk who would always seem to appear every time I went over there to top barrels, and he was, it turned out he was the kind of a thorn in the abbot's side because he didn't buy fruit, he would get these wine kits mailed to him, and then you just add water and you start fermenting, and that would have been fine, but he always, submitted the wines to the state fair and he was winning gold medals so the abbot couldn't really ignore him and, and tell him to stop because he had a bit of a reputation in the home winemaking world so um, you know things like that were kind of interesting and and then eventually I got kind of my barrels kind of got shoved off into a, a side warehouse until the point where I had to walk on the top of the barrels just they were packed in so tightly to top because everything else was starting to come in the the warehouse business was taking off and they had actual wineries that had bottled wine in there, so. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so first Fanger was 88 and then, uh, it was in barrel longer than I really wanted to have it. Uh, so it was, it was released later. I'd already kept it in barrel for, you know, two years and then an additional almost almost another year or so. Uh, by the time I actually got around to getting it bottled and taking it into town, it was kind of, um, I was feeling a little sheepish. So I, I said 1988 reserve and I never, I never lived that down. That took about seven or eight years because I would come out with a vintage and people would say, well, when's the reserve coming out? I go, oh. <laughs> People have an institutional memory. Like every time you make rosé, you know, if you just, you make one rosé and 10 years later, people are still saying, when, when's the next rosé coming out? And you go, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> um, but anyway, the first, I can remember going, going in, having not sold any wine, and at that point, you know, you've had all these construction expenses, vineyard expenses, you're really wanting to get some cash flow. And so I had a car full of wine, drove in, and then I had a map of like the 20 different wine shops I was going to stop in, restaurants. And, and I got close to the Twilliger curves and I thought, you know, maybe I should start from the end of the list and then I'll work my way back. 
and I realized, no, you're just procrastinating. This is, I'd sold uh, encyclopedias one summer in college, door to door, and I said, no, you're just procrastinating. You know, you got to just bite the bullet and get off Twilliger exit and go to Burlingame Grocery. So I pulled out a sample bottle and I walked in the store, thinking, well, I'm just going to give samples out to everybody, and maybe I'll hear back, maybe not, but certainly not going to sell any wine today. Walked in there with a bottle, and the wine steward, Richard, he says, says, oh, he looked at the label and he said, are you John Thomas? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I've been waiting for you for like a year now. And, and, and he said, do you, have, do, you have any, uh, do you have any wine with you? And I said, yeah, I've got, I've, he said, I'll take two cases. And I said, you don't even want to taste it? And he said, no, no, I've been hearing about you for years from John Paul. You know, I've just been waiting. And it turned out this whole day was kind of like that. You'd walk in, they'd say, you're John Thomas, I've heard about you, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, that, <clears throat> that made life a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, plus, you know, the fact that, and we were sort of the second generation, John Paul, myself, Russ Rainey. Um, in fact, um, there was a sommelier emailed me a couple weeks back, and he said, he said, as one of the pioneers, we'd like to get your, some, some of your vintages, older vintages on our wine list. And I said, well, I said, I'm not a pioneer. I said, you could call, call us sons of the pioneers, but, but not pioneers. I said, that's David Alzheim and, and Lett and Bill Fuller and guys like that. I want to talk a little bit about life before all of that. So tell me about where you're born and raised um, and what prompted you sort of down the geology track. Um, Born and raised in Lansing, East Lansing, Michigan. Um, grew up like one house away from a GM Fisher body plant. So walking to elementary school was basically eight blocks of Fisher body plant. And so, and then the high school was another block away. So you'd hear, it was kind of a toss up what you were gonna hear that night. If it was gonna be the high school football game or the guys stamping out bumpers and fenders at the body plant. Um, but no wine drinking really in my background with my parents. It was mostly they enjoyed cocktails and you know beer and um, we'd have I think it was called cask. It was a Finger Lakes wine. It was cooking wine, but you could tell just from of course it sat next to the stove for months at a time, so it wasn't going to improve much. But um, I made some mead, I guess, at one point when I was in college, and, um, but it wasn't really until I was in Alaska that the, the wine bug bit. And, um, you know, I, I got interested in geology just because everything else seemed like it was interesting, but like architecture was interesting, but I hate drafting. Uh, it seemed like marine biology was interesting, but you end up if you want to make any money, you're working for the government. Um, what else was there? Cinematography, you know, I, I, when I was running into dead ends uh, pursuing wine, I applied to a number of graduate schools in engineering geology, um, thinking that would be a good fallback position. But um, was down in LA uh, interviewing at USC and was eventually accepted but you know, part of the reason for USC was I knew they had a great film school, and I thought maybe I can dabble in a little cinematography while I'm pursuing engineering geology. 
Um, second, second time I went down there, the smog was so bad, my eyes were burning before I even got 30 miles from L.A. And I thought, you know, that and uh, you ended up having to get a master's degree by working for somebody during the day and going to school at night. And so it was going to take, it wasn't just a two-year program, it was more like a four-year program. And um, So the wine, the wine thing got more and more appealing. Um, but, you know, it's a little daunting when you've never farmed in your life and um, never made wine. Uh, but consumed a lot of books and um, when we started there were, oh, like my friend Bill had some connections in England and uh, there was a woman named uh, Jillian Pierks that had a small vineyard in England and she'd done a lot of research because none of us, I think the, the problem with the Oregon industry when we started, and a, a number of other people in interviews have alluded to this, is that no one was really focused on what was going on in France. I mean, David Alzheim was fluent in German and a couple other people, and so um, a lot of the a lot of the technical stuff, the the viticulture end of it, was was kind of um, kind of migrated from Germany. And of course, the Germans were better experimenters than the French were. And so that helped, and they tended to write everything down. We had um, books called, like, there was one called The Climate Near the Ground, which was really interesting because I had taken a few meteorology courses in college. And, and these guys in Germany were experimenting with, you know, temperatures at various heights with various trellis widths and various ground covers. And this was back in the 50s, just after World War II. And wrote it all down, and it was really interesting because you think about just all the little microclimates that are involved, and especially when you start pushing your density higher and higher. Um, and it was kind of interesting because I think it was the third year um, that this was planted, um, Robert Drouin came over because they had, when they first started their vineyard in 87, they couldn't get a straddling tractor from France over. So they planted seven foot rows and five feet in, I think it was five feet in the row. And, but they were gonna go to a higher density to one, I guess it's 1.3 by one. Um, so really, you're at that density, at that row width, you need a straddling tractor. So he was kind of curious because I knew Bill Wayne and his wife, Deborah, um, they had come out from Michigan also when I was working at Veritas. So it was one Friday during the summer and and they came by and uh, they'd been out at a bed and breakfast down on the coast and the guy that owned the bed and breakfast said, you really should stop by Veritas and try some of their wine. So they came by and we hit it off because we grew up within about 30 miles of one another, it turned out. And uh, Bill, they, they were both, they had just remodeled the house, I guess it was in St. Louis and sold it, and <clears throat> Bill was pushing to just go to Europe and spend all the money and come back and get a job. And Deborah was pushing to kind of take a vacation out here and maybe look for possibilities for other careers. And so, so you know, we talked for, gosh, like an hour, and uh, Bill ended up saying, said, well, if we really wanted to pursue this a little bit more, what should we do? And I said, well, 
why don't you keep in touch because we need some people to work harvest this fall and if you wanted to learn I would suggest working harvest and if you still enjoy the business at the end of harvest then maybe the wine business is for you but you'll you'll find out immediately within six weeks whether you enjoy this or not and so it was just like my job at Con Creek you know it was something that I thought was going to fall together I kept in touch the guy who was the assistant winemaker at Trefethen became the winemaker at Con Creek I kept in touch with him and he said sure come on out had a job so you make these little connections that you think are not that useful at the time but you know down the road they're very useful um, so anyway since I knew Bill and Deb and Bill ended up managing Domain Drin and really overseeing construction of that place for the first gosh he was there for 13 years I think but anyway so Robert Drin came out and I was flattered that he was wanting to come visit, but at the same time I had this I had this weed that was called Panicle Willow Herb, and it was growing up into the fruit zone of the, so the vineyard was just embarrassingly bad. And, but he came out, didn't say anything about the weeds, and uh, I guess figured out that, you know, I didn't have a, a problem of too much vigor on the soil, and so they went ahead and, and planted their, gosh, I don't know how many acres they have now, but. So you mentioned obviously getting into the getting into this without having farmed before, without having made wine before, and obviously trying trying to learn through books and through kind of trial and error. So tell me about the first sort of we'll start, we'll start with your first harvest. Start when you're still in California. Tell me about first harvest experience. You you talk about how that's kind of a like you're going to know pretty quickly whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. What did you like about it? What what made you think that was something you wanted to keep doing? Uh, well, it's it's. It's fascinating having both a winery and a vineyard because it's almost two different mindsets. You know, the, the decisions you make in the vineyard, you can, you can like chew on a decision for a week or maybe two weeks. Decisions in the winery kind of have to be made within a matter of hours because you've got fermentations. Do you cool this fermentation down? Do you warm it up? Do you... Um, when you punch down, um, all sorts of things like that. And so it was just, and it was really interesting also working in a winery that not only did they have their own estate fruit, but they purchased from, gosh, probably eight different growers. So you'd have all these fermentations and you'd, I thought, well, the estate, the owner's fruit is always going to make the best wine. No, never did. <laughs> and, uh, and the, just everything, and the, the, the flavor profiles of grapes coming from the same vineyard. You'd have, you know, Cabernet when it's a little underripe, it's kind of a bell peppery, um, not green, but it just has some herbaceous characters to it. I mean, Cabernet's herbaceous anyway. But then you'd reach kind of this bell curve where you'd get just pure Cabernet, and then when it was a little bit overripe, you start getting chocolate and Bing cherry, and the same thing happens with Pinot. I think it probably happens with every grape, but there's a, there's an optimal point, depending on what your palate is, to pick those. Um, so just learning little things like that um, is fascinating. And there's a lot of just basic mechanical knowledge that I guess I'm fairly good at, you know, so you'd see something and you could figure out a way around it, you know, a lot of, 
a lot of vineyard and winery stuff is what's the workaround, you know, because you can't, you can't get a part flown in from Germany or something like that. You have to improvise. Um, I tell people starting out, I said, you know, the, one of the first things you get after a tractor and a sprayer is get yourself a welder. I said, you know, if, if you're in college, you have a guitar, that's your creative outlet. If you have a winery, you get a welder, that's your creative outlet. You can build your own equipment, you can just go to a steel yard and, and grab stuff and just paste it together, basically, and um, yeah, design your own stuff. Um, so, yeah. So with the vineyard here, uh, obviously you mentioned obviously kind of kind of a radical spacing, or at least for the time, radical spacing here. So tell me about getting the vineyard in, and what were the what were the sort of the bumps along the way? What were the like the big learning moments for you as you were getting the vineyard online? Um, hmm. Well, the first year was relatively easy. I didn't realize how easy because it was such a wet spring, and virtually everything I put in the ground survived. I mean, some were luxuriant. They were growing. I had six foot long canes at the end of the year. And I thought, well, this is, this is not hard at all, you know? And, and then we get to the second year, 1985, and because I ran out of vines. So I thought I had plenty of vines, um, but then, you know, you dig them out of the ground and you find that some just don't have much of a root system and, and they're just dwarfs basically. So, you know, just put those on the burn pile. And so I planted probably two-thirds of the vineyard the first year. And then the, the last of it, the lower part, uh, planted in 85. And that was such a hot, it was kind of a more typical Oregon summer. You know, it just, suddenly the rain stopped and it got hot. And I was thinking, well, how am I going to water these vines? And so I went over to uh, Peter Adams Vineyard. They were friends with Bill and Julia and had been around for a long time. In fact, Russ Rainey was the winemaker for them. They had probably the first urban winery in Portland. And they had just a pile of old rusted number 10 cans. Uh, and that's what people would use. This was like predated the milk carton business, you know. So threw those in my truck, put them around all the vines. Um, and they, it turned out they just reflected the heat onto the vine and make it even hotter. And I lost more vines that way. So the first year, I think I lost probably 10% of the vines that I planted versus, versus none the year before. So that, that was an eye-opener. Um, and the frost we had, Mother's Day frost, um, I went out from my little trailer. But like it, I knew it was cold, and I went out just before sunup. It was like 5 in the morning, and I looked out because I had spent Oh, two weeks. Everybody, you know, we used bamboo stakes back then instead of steel pencil rod. And I'd tied up all these vines and taken two weeks to do it. So they were all up about that high on the on the bamboo. Went out at five in the morning and I looked and everything was green. And I go, great, you know, start making breakfast. Then the sun comes up and turned out all the vines they were green, but they were frozen. And so as soon as the sun hit them, they started going like that, turning black. And I thought, oh, another two weeks going back out. Yeah, so there are those setbacks. We always had birds. You know, we haven't had, actually, this interesting thing in the last probably three years, there just haven't been many birds. And I don't know if it was the um, 
the smoke issue we had in 2020, it changed the migratory patterns, or if it's just the fact that it's been getting warmer progressively since 2014. So maybe that has something to do with it, but you know, 2020 and 2021, virtually no birds. And so there are people with, including myself, that have piles of bird netting stashed somewhere that we'll probably never use again. We'll probably not chaptalize again. I think the last time I did that was 20, 2011. Um, now we're more worried about heat and uh, I don't pull leaves anymore. Um, I've changed uh, probably the pruning thinning technique from four times since I started this. At first we had, oh, my, my, my fruiting wire was about 12 inches off the ground when I started. And I ended up, um, the first couple of years we picked, I borrowed Cameron's picking crew because I didn't have my own. And uh, turned out they referred to this as Los Fresas Vineyard because it's the strawberries and it was like bending over having to, yeah. So after Druen went in, I went over there and looked at their trellis and I thought, I think I can raise this up just a little bit and I'll, I'll last a lot longer, at least my back will. So I uh, did that and, and then at this density you have, generally I'd have maybe six shoots and a renewal. And then every August, of course, I was pulling leaves because I'd always have a little too much crop. And usually if you got two clusters, which is average per shoot, so you'd pull leaves, and then you'd drop drop things down to one cluster per shoot. And about five years ago, I came back from Burgundy, and I said, you know, why am I out here in August doing this? I should just thin more severely. So now I thin to three shoots in a renewal, um, which is, you know, it's rolling the dice because if you get... Uh, wet weather during bloom and not everything pollinates, then you're, sh you're short in your crop. But if everything comes in on average, then um, no thinning is involved. What about sort of learning that as you decided this was going to be something you were going to do yourself, you were going to be doing, out here doing the work. What about sort of how long did it take you to learn the annual cycle of what you had to do when and how long you had to do it? Hmm. It took about, I don't know, seven or eight years, hit or miss. Yeah, and you know, because somebody would always want to drag you off on vacation for a week at the wrong time. We went, I knew I was never going to get to Burgundy uh, during harvest. And uh, one year I had the chance to go in, this was 2018, I had the chance to go, but it was right, gosh, the mid-May. And I said, you know, I just really can't, I can't imagine getting away from the vineyard then. Everything's going to town. But at the same time, you know, it's going to be a, two weeks in Burgundy. So I thought, yeah, I really should. I'm not going to get there otherwise. So I did it, came back, and, I mean, I barely got the catch wires up. I had to just, like, it's like doing a bench press, basically, for three days straight. And so it wasn't pretty, but the vineyard was fine, the fruit was fine. Um, and it's a lot of fun, you know, after having, having read all the stuff about Burgundy and how they do this and that, and going there after you've planted your own vineyard and realizing that we were in La Romanie, 
And it's, I put my foot up like this, you know, to the top of the trellis. I was a little more flexible back then. And uh, I go, oh, this is, I can almost do this on my vineyard, you know. And the, the rows were clean cultivated like this and shoot thinning. And, and yeah, I go, oh, at least I've, I'm doing something right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'd love to go back during harvest, but that's going to have to wait until retirement, I think. So let's we'll talk about the winemaking then as the, the sort of the next part of that. Uh, tell me about developing your style and, and learning to work with, with Pinot Noir specifically. What, how long did it take you to figure out what you wanted to make and, and how to get there? Uh, I kind of knew what I... The, the style of wine, the Pinot I like is... Um, maybe a little more austere than most of the Pinots I'd had at that point, certainly more austere than California Pinots that I'd had. Um, I wasn't afraid of, of putting something out in the marketplace that needed some bottle age, and I felt that people were willing to be patient enough. If you know the flavor profile seemed right, I thought it was very important to keep the alcohol down, which wasn't a problem back you know, in the 80s, um, got to be a problem in the 90s. But um, I, I was just trying to make wine that I myself wanted to drink. Mm -hmm. And what you can do, you know, my production level is about 600 cases a year. And if I was really large, then you'd be more swayed by, you know, your perception of what, what does the market want. And so you'd probably be making something that's, you know, easier to drink, more approachable when it's young, not as tannic not as much acid, um, but as it is, I, um, you know, some of the older vintages, I, I, 94 was a vintage that was uh, just a wonderful vintage when it was young, but I thought, you know, this is a really big, broad-shouldered vintage, and I would tell people, you know, drink this within six years, I don't think it's gonna last. And, and we've just had a couple bottles a few months ago, and it's still hanging in there, you know, and so, there, those. I think that's the most surprising thing to me about Pinot because originally, I, I was thinking, things weren't going to last more than ten years. And um, I think I heard Veronique say that of all the vintages they made at Druin, only '97 was the one that she felt hadn't held up, and that was a very cold, wet vintage, lots of botrytis. Um, we sorted lots of botrytis and. <clears throat> Had to open a magnum a couple of months back just to see what it was like, and it, you know, it, it's seen better days. But it, it, by the same token, towards the end of the evening, and admittedly I was probably drinking most of the bottle, but uh, towards the end of the evening it was really kind of coming into its own to the point where I'm tempted to open another one and, and just see. I think I have like three left. So, uh, but that's fun to see. The, Originally, when I started selling wine, I was selling a lot to California, and now I sell probably, I sell very little. I mean, I sell to people on the mailing list to California, but I didn't, don't have any, um, any large accounts. Um, whereas now I have probably 15% of my sales are to Europe. So um, that, to me, says that I'm on the right track if I'm, you know, trying to come up with a wine that can, can kind of stand on its own with Burgundy. 
let's talk about selling wine because obviously you have a fairly unique model and approach now in, 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 at Thomas Wine. So tell me about, you mentioned kind of having a head start in terms of people having talked about your wine before you even took it out to the market. Mm -hmm. Tell me how your selling has, has evolved and why you've chosen to kind of sell the wine the way you have. Um, well, certainly the mailing list um, has evolved to the point where I never thought it would. Um, back when I started, I had been, like I say, working at Nick's for a couple years, um, so they all know my phone number, and and I worked at Tina's, worked at Red Hills, you know, occasionally just filling in when somebody needed a waiter, and of course I always needed some money. Um, but so when when IPNC started, invariably it seemed like I would get these calls from people that had been to a restaurant, been to Tina's or Nick's or Red Hills, and it would be Sunday night. Everybody disperses, you know, the, the event's over and everybody's on their own for dinner. And they would go out and they'd look at the wine list and they'd say, well, do you have something that I didn't see at IPNC? And a waiter would say, well, here, try this, you know, and they'd have it. And they of course, I didn't have anything on the bottle that indicated where I was, or you know, there was just a little government warning thing that I hand pasted on. And uh, <clears throat> so I would get a call, and they'd say, um, "I was at the Tina's the other night. Had your wine, loved it. They gave me your phone number, and I'd go, oh, great, you know." And I, so to to stall them off, I well, I gave them the truth. I'd said, "Well, I don't have any wine right now." And that's the reason I'm not in IPNC, and, uh, but I'll have some in the fall when I'm bottling. So give me a call then. And I would hope that they'd lose this little scrap of paper and be done with it. But it, it turned out they didn't. And so, you know, the first year was like a dozen people, and then you get a dozen more, and then it kind of snowballs. And I think now it's to a point where probably a third of my production is a mail list. Um, and you get these... These letters from, you know, there'll be a town like in Iowa and, and you look at the address and you go, gosh, that the name of that town sounds familiar. And you realize, well, there's a guy on the list already. He's a doctor. Well, doctors hang out together, you know, and so this other doctor goes over for a dinner party, blah, blah, blah. It kind of works like that. Lawyers, doctors, dentists. That's all. Um, and so that's about mm, a third, probably mm, another half, I would guess, is retailers in Portland. And, but I don't have any um, distributors, really, to speak of, um, which, good and bad. I mean, it's nice to sell um, <clears throat> to a distributor because you get one fat check and just take it over to the Abbey, mile down the road, and done deal. You know, as long as the distributor is financially healthy, and I've had a few that haven't been, and other people in the same boat. Um, so it's kind of nice to have a check arrive before you even send the wine back to somebody. It's just the the hurdles of the all state wine laws that are, that's probably the biggest snafu at this point. Um, and then, you know, I do a few restaurants, but mostly in the county because I'm out in the vineyard all summer, so it's really hard to supply somebody in Portland. Um, but 
it's just down to the point where <clears throat> I release wine November 1st and hopefully it's all pretty much gone by February and and then go on vacation and come back and start the vineyard and the season begins again. And so you've never had the you never had the desire to get bigger or to have employees or to make more wine? Nope. No, that's the question I get most often is that people come up here and they say well, how many acres do you have? And I said, well, 25 plus. And I said, well, is it all plantable? And I said, well, pretty much all of it. And they said, well, <laughs> why don't you? And I said, well, I've worked for too many people that uh, they think, well, I'm, if I do 600 cases at X dollars a case, if I, if I double my production, then I can be making twice as much money. But the reality is you've got to hire a vineyard manager, you've got staff, and then you've got, you know, you've got to take on distributors, and it just becomes something where I would be doing, you know, lots of trade shows and you're doing winemaker dinners around the country and you're talking to banks about your loan, and, and as it is, I can just go out in the vineyard and I don't have to worry about any of that. Um, so, I mean, there's some trade-offs. If I'm not on the vineyard, work's not getting done. But at the same time, I don't have those other worries, and I, I just prefer that. I'd much rather, you know, the first guy that we um, uh, worked for, Con Creek, the winemaker didn't trust the owner to top his own barrels, you know, because he thought he'd get sidetracked and, you know, screw something up. So he wasn't allowed down in the cellar. <laughs> I thought was a little odd. It seems like once you have investors involved, the investor is usually has plenty of money, but he doesn't have any idea of how the marketing works. Or, um, and so he has ideas that he would like to do something, but they're not rational ideas, let's put it that way. Uh, so <clears throat> you're dealing with that. So. You know, if you can, if you can do something like I've done, the first the first ten or fifteen years are the hardest. Whereas if you have an investor, it's easy. the 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 hard part with an investor is the tail end of the deal when everybody is trying to get out from underneath the winery and retire, and you find out that well, there's not that much money in it. It's just like restaurants, you know. So, um, at least if you're in the business by yourself, you have the value of the property, which has certainly increased. As when I first started, I've got six contiguous neighbors here, and now three of those have vineyards. So I think it'll just be a matter of time before maybe blackberries down here, another vineyard, and who knows. But um, don't know where all the wine's going to go, but I've been saying that for 30 years and been proven wrong every year. You mentioned sort of the first the first decade or so being the biggest challenge. So tell me about some of the sort of sort of odd jobs or or sort of uh, living odd li odd living arrangements you had to kind of come up with to make to make it through while you were getting this going. Gee, I was a uh, I was uh, I was an easy sell for house hitting. You know, any time anyone on Warden Hill Road wanted to go to Europe or take a vacation to California, need somebody to house sit. I was right there. I house that for Dickie Rath when he built his new house up on Prince Hill. 
And it was so funny because you'd drive in there and he had uh, the same, he said, Ernie Munch, the same fellow that designed uh, Domain Duran, designed Bill's house, and um, I mean Dick Eras house. And uh, it had so many kitchen cabinets that contained virtually nothing because Dick didn't eat that much, you know, big guy, but. Uh, so you'd be in the kitchen and, you know, you'd, you'd remember seeing sugar in a cupboard. And then you'd shut that cupboard and two minutes later you'd go, where did I see the sugar? There are, there are 50 of these. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then uh, all the posts out here are metal. One time Bill and Julia Wayne were on vacation. I think it was California for a couple of weeks. Wanted me to house sit and I thought, well, it's the dead of winter can't do anything in the vineyard, but I had all these posts, and when I first worked at Irie in the vineyard, my job was um, replacing rotten vineyard posts, because their spacing is so wide, they have maybe like 300, 400 vines to the acre, it's 10 by 12. So David had purchased all these old treated bean poles that were like two inch square. So there was one post at every vine, and some of those were rotting out. Um, after 20 years, 15 years. So I, I spent a couple days doing that, and I said, at the end of that, I said, if I ever have a vineyard, I'm gonna have steel posts. I don't know, I don't care what it takes. But there was no way to really hook the wires up, and especially the catch wires. There was no system back then, because everybody had, everybody had wood posts, and you could see how they were gonna be on their way out in 10 or 20 years, because people would, to hold the catch wires, they would just put a nail in at a 45 degree angle. And of course, as the, as the post weathered and aged, those nails would pop out and then you get them in your tractor tire and you'd spend half a day at the tractor dealer getting your tire fixed. And so I just thought, you know, steel would be the way to go. So this was actually the first all steel trellis system in Oregon. There were some guys, uh, Winquist and Seeley, and they had, they had a steel system too, but they had wood end posts and only single wire, so everything just hung. Um, so, yeah, I took every post out here, I think it's like 1,600 T-posts, took them one by one down in Bill and Julia's basement, drilled eight holes in each of them, took them back out, threw them in the car. <laughs> Dumb stuff like that. You do when you're, you know, in your 30s and you wouldn't do again, but it seemed like the only option at that time. And you used to live on the vineyard? Um, yeah, for two years I lived here in a trailer. Um, there was no, um, didn't have enough money to gravel the road, didn't have enough money to um, put a well in. There was, the well was here, but there was a, um, I couldn't figure out how to get a pump down it. <clears throat> Actually, I was, the, um, the couple that I bought it from, Cecil and Doris Ziegler, they have, it's now Guadalupe Vineyard where they lived, and they owned three or four other parcels that were all pretty much in prunes or cherries. And uh, so one day I was out measuring the well, and this was after Cecil had passed away, and this old guy came through the property carrying a deer rifle, and he, he looked like he had these sort of Coke bottle glasses, and he said, he said, have you seen a deer come through here? And I thought, you shouldn't be carrying a gun, let alone hunting. <clears throat> I couldn't see the 
piece of toast at 50 yards. Um, but uh, I said, no, I hadn't, I hadn't seen your deer. And he said, what are you working on? I said, well, Cecil Ziegler, who I bought this place from, he said, he said this well is 160 feet deep, and I can only get down like, like 140. And I can't figure out what's, you know, if he was, he told me wrong or what. And this guy says, well, he said, he said I was here when, when Cecil was pulling that pump, and he dropped the last 20 feet of it in the hole. He can't, couldn't get it back out. So, so then I thought, ah, oh, you know, how, how am I going to get that out? And I went down to uh, the farm store, and they had something that was kind of like a equivalent of a Chinese finger trap that you could lower on a cable, pull it up, and it caught that, pulled it out. But yeah, lots of little happenstance things that you, there's timing, I guess, basically. Um, so, you know, a lot of the vineyard, the vineyard things are pretty much timing related. You can do it pretty much any task out here. If you do it at the right time, it's going to take you X amount of hours. And if you do it, you know, two weeks later, it's going to take you three X. And that's a real learning experience um, because, you know, you come from the world of academia or whatever, or geology, and you think, well, if I wait, it's just going to take the same amount of time. But with something growing, no, it's, it's another, another bucket of worms. How has your wine making changed, or, or and how has the wine changed in the years you've been making wine? Uh, wine making hasn't changed that much. Um, I used indigenous yeasts when I started, and then there was a, a section of kind of cool years like 2010, 2011, where you know the fruit's going to come in late. Uh, it's going to be cold. It's going to probably have some botrytis in it. Uh, that you might not be able to sort out 100%. So it's very important to get the fermentation off and running so you don't get a lot of um, undesirable bacterial growth or, or VA. Uh, so for a number of years I used um, a cultured yeast, which gives you the advantage of a big inoculum, and so the fermentation just pops. Um, and and then, um, back about the same time I modified my trellis, I went back to indigenous yeast because I was noticing that a lot of the, a lot of the cultured yeast that you would get uh, from a, a, a wine supply store, um, they have nitrogen requirements, so you have to give them a little, have to give them a little feeding and then the temperature spikes, then you have to turn on the cooling, and then you have to wait till that subsides, and then feed it again, and it spikes again. Uh, <clears throat> so I went back to indigenous yeast, and it's a very nice linear fermentation. Um, um, I've always done manual punch downs, um, just gravity in the barrel, and then there's basically one racking uh, where I just use nitrogen gas pressure and then sits in barrel for 20 months, 22 months, and a little fresh egg white fining, and then bottling. So it's pretty, pretty simple. It'd be nice to get a, a mobile bottling truck up the road, but as you can see, <laughs> in your experience, <laughs> it's not easily done. Um, and I don't have, you know, 
quite the water volume that they would need for something like that. Um, nor do I have three-phase power up here, so uh, yeah, there's that. As you age, you'd like to have some aspects of the business get a little less taxing physically, but uh, haven't figured out a way around that yet. <laughs> Might have chosen the wrong business for that. May, may have, yeah. Yeah, this year was the first year I've had some people visiting um, journalists that have asked my age, and that's kind of yeah, a wake-up call. It's like, it's like you know, when when do you apply for Social Security and things like that. But yep, so far stayed flexible and took up scuba diving three years ago. Uh, you know, one of those things you put off and put off, and you think, well, maybe I'll never do this, and and then suddenly you find yourself doing it, so who knows, but, yeah. Well, I'm gonna come back to that in a second, but I'm curious about, you, you talked about sort of some, of some of the skills you've, you've had and acquired, so tell me about what are, in your opinion, what are the most important skills for a winemaker, or what have you found to be the most important skills for you to get here? Um, winemaking is a lot like cooking. It's, you know, your ingredients change from year to year. Um, but it's, there's, yeah, I would say it's, you know, you've got, you have fruit, you have a little bit of spice from the barrels. So the barrels are a, a big, I think people don't give enough credit to the, the effect of a, of a barrel, or I should say the effect of a, a subtle barrel versus a, a less one. Um, initially we had, we started and people used, you know, medium heavy toast barrels that you could really, there was a lot of barrel in Oregon Pinots back in the day. Um, and now it's, it, that's, it's more f fruit focused, I would say. And um, so I use a barrel that gives the wine a lot of structure, but there's not any, um, there's not any char flavor, um, so it's a, it's a very light touch, basically. And in terms of sort of the sort of construction or, or, or fixing of things, uh, how, have, how have those sort of skills developed and, and how have you sort of decided what you needed to have here and how to, how to get it here? You know, the, having the two fermenters from day one, that's been a big help because You've got stainless steel that really doesn't need any maintenance. You've got a um, cooling jacket, which I use pretty much every year. Sometimes you're, you know, warming the, firm, you're warming the fruit up uh, when it comes in because if you're picking, like last year, you know, we were picking the 23rd of October. Um, in some years, like 2010, 2011, you're picking around Halloween and the fruit's coming in at 50 degrees and it's gonna sit there if you're relying on indigenous yeast, it's going to sit there for maybe a week before it starts taking off. And so just a matter of, of turning on, I'm using well water basically, uh, circulating that through, heated, and getting the fermentation started. Then conversely, a lot of our, our sugars are a little higher than they used to be. Um, back in 84, when I worked at Tualatin, you know, you were lucky to get 19 bricks that year. And we don't have that problem anymore, <laughs> luckily. Knock on metal. Mm, so, 
Um, yeah, the, the the anachronism here, I think, is that people look at all these buckets that I have. You know, we pick in individual buckets, and the fruit is only basically transferred uh, once, so it hits the sorting table, and and the only person I've run into who really likes that idea was a winemaker from the Rhone because they're dumping fruit you know and then it travels I don't know how they get it to the winery but you'd look back in California when they had these people would pick in these five-ton gondolas that were metal and they'd pull them behind a pickup truck well you know if you didn't process that fruit that day and it sat outside in the shade of the winery and it was you know, picked at 80 degrees and it sat in that metal container. The last, when you dumped that gondola, probably the last, you know, 100 gallons had been fermenting in the bottom and, and who knows what conditions with, who knows how much botrytis or whatever had settled out. And uh, yeah, so the, the the washing of, you know, five or 600 buckets is not a lot of fun, but Duran does the same thing. They just use those, those uh, what they call FYBs. Um, which, so <clears throat> when we first started picking, everybody would use these, um, basically it was all kind of the, the cherry picking technology. So everyone had these plywood totes or a four by four and put a liner in them. And that's what we'd pick into. And then we wouldn't start crushing until the crew left about five o'clock. Well, that meant you're up until midnight, one or two or whatever, loading for matters. And so as it is now, we start crushing within probably about half an hour of picking. And picking crew usually, you know, they're usually up here having cervezas and, and tacos and whatnot from about three o'clock because they're done. And we're still processing fruit maybe till six. And then if we're lucky, and had enough daylight, then we're done. So, and then next day you've got 500 buckets to wash. So, <laughs> yeah, but, um, so I think, you know, it'd be, it'd be nice to have a, an elevator, you know, and a, uh, as it is, we hire a couple guys. They, we used to have a guy from the Newberg wrestling team who he didn't really even need to pay. You know, he was just, it was a workout for him lift 900 buckets full of grapes and twice and um but you know you think of when you're just crushing one day and you think of all you're trying to eliminate all the things that are going to go wrong there's always you know there's always one thing and you lie awake the night before thinking what is that one thing going to be is it a big thing is it a little thing how can i plan for that um some things like the smoke we had in 2020 you just can't plan for it that's you know you call like a black, that's a black swan event. It's, it's not anticipated and it might never happen again. But um, yeah, other things, um, tractor breaking down in the middle of harvest, you know, you've got a little bug in your fuel line, that's happened. And tractor doesn't work and you've got your maintenance book back at the house in Carlton. And you still, so then you have to quick switch equipment onto another tractor and keep everybody happy. Um, so it'd be nice to have you know, I was over at Mike Utzel's winery a week ago, Sequitur, and it's just state-of-the-art everything, you know. But when you have uh, 
a group of people in there and you know you're going to be crushing for three weeks, if you're down one day, well, that's no big deal. But if everything, if you're like here and you're waiting until the very last minute to pick and rain's going to be coming the next day, you know, something better not break down. And so the fewer things that you can have that rely on electronics or motors or, you know, metric worm gears, the better. And so I tell people, I say, yes, it's all gravity, but gravity hasn't failed yet and probably won't in the near foreseeable future. So that's what we'll use. And yes, it's a little 17th century, but it works. So. If it does fail, you'll have bigger problems than the wine. Yes, yes. It's like when we were, um, <clears throat> we were pouring concrete. Bill, Bill was helping me, Bill Wayne and um, his vineyard guy. Jesus, and the walls are 12 feet high, foot thick concrete. Well, I've got a piece of electrical PVC conduit that the electric wires that run all the sconces and everything in the barrel room. Um, and that goes in the wall and it's down about four feet. So we were filling that wall with concrete and suddenly just the force of the concrete split this one fitting. Luckily it was right in the corner. I realized that was the one that I hadn't glued. And I thought, for the next 50 years, I'm not gonna have any, any lights in the barrel room and I'm gonna have to run conduit you know, outside on the wall. It's gonna look awful. And I thought, how can I get, you know, so I ran down, luckily had a can of PVC cement. And I said, I said Bill, you and, you and Jesus have to suspend me Luckily, it was on a corner, so I could fit in, and they put me down head first, each holding an ankle, and I had a can of PVC cement, and I cemented that and let it dry for about five minutes before we filled it up with concrete. And then, you know, but the, the guy that did the inspection afterwards, he said, well, you can't have your, your electricity in the concrete like that. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, if there's ever a seismic event here, and that... PVC is severed, you won't have any lights. And I said, well, if there's ever a seismic event big enough to sever that PVC, I'm not gonna be living here. <laughs> so, no worries, but, yeah. So you talked, you've talked throughout about some of the, sort of some of the early, early founders and characters in the Oregon wine industry and your interactions with them. So tell me about, as you traveled, first traveled through here and then sort of settled here, um, tell me about meeting some of, the, some of those people and sort of your impressions of both the people making wine here in the 1980s in Oregon and the wines they were making. Uh, well, like I say, I would, I would knock on doors and you know, give everybody my list of five questions. I remember one day I was down I was camping out at Champui State Park and visiting wineries and pulled into Amity and it was like a Friday afternoon <clears throat> about four o'clock and I mean Myron was always very busy and he was he had a lot on his plate you could tell um, I think he had an assistant winemaker at that point but uh, they were filtering getting ready to bottle you know he was like doing stuff in the vineyard working on a tractor he had just a lot going on. Um, but anyway, he, he was more than free with his time and, and, and showed me the whole operation and we tasted wines. And 
And then he said, you know, it's five o'clock, everybody's leaving. He said, well, what are you doing for dinner? I said, oh, I'm probably going to, you know, go into a fast food place and get a hamburger and, and go back and camp out. And he said, well, he said, we're just going to do a barbecue here. You want to join us? And I said, sure. You know, so we went into Amity and got some steaks and he fried up the barbecue. We're just ready to sit down for dinner. And his brother, Steve, is there. Um, and it's getting to be about dusk and we're looking out and it's very bucolic. The vineyard was all, the shoots were all about like that. And, um, and is just about ready to stick a fork into our steak and have a glass of wine. And Steve kind of squints out into the distance and he said, he said, Myron, is it, is that a deer down there? He said, and Myron said, no, I don't think that's a deer. And Steve said, no, that's a deer. You know, and then he gets up from the table and he takes off. And Myron says, he says, oh, I know how this is going to play out. He's going to show up with his deer rifle. And he said, we're not going to have dinner for a couple hours. He said, the last time this happened, he said, Steve winged the deer. We tracked it, he said, past midnight. And it ended up collapsing in the sheriff's yard down in town. <laughs> and I don't know, he, I, he didn't elaborate on how they got the deer out of there, or how they avoided getting arrested or whatever. But, but I thought at that point, maybe this vineyard business is a little more complicated than, you know, just planting and letting things grow. And um, David Lett um, was always, I mean, everything there was very organized. He was the only winemaker, I think, that definitely thought about what he was wearing that day, you know? He would show up for work and he always had a little hide apron uh, that he'd put on, and so he was always immaculately dressed. Half the time, in a, if he was going out, he had you know what you'd call a safari suit on, something like that. We had a party once, Ken Wright, when he had Panther Creek. We had such a big space, and we had some years where if everything got cleaned up and you had everything in barrel, we could stage a Halloween party. So we did a Halloween party a couple of times there. Um, the theme of the second party was come as your alter ego. And so Nick, who usually showed up at his restaurant just wearing a t-shirt, suspenders, belt, um, he, he and David Lett came as each other. So <laughs> it was really funny to see David Lett dressed just in the t-shirt, you know, khakis. And, and then Nick in a safari suit. <laughs> I don't know where I, where he found one big enough to accommodate Nick, but <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, but yeah, everybody else. I mean, Dick Ponzi built a lot of his own equipment because of his background. Um, he had one destemmer. We, we went over one day, Bill Wayne and another winemaker and I. He, Dick gave us the whole tour and he showed us this destemmer he had that he'd been using up until the previous vintage. And gosh, the, the fingers on the inside were all wood, the auger, basically. It was made in Austria or something like that. And we were just gobsmacked. We thought, how do you keep that thing clean, let alone how do you keep the thing from f flying apart? And uh, he said, well, you know, it's worked and it's made, made his 94, which was a great vintage, great wine from Ponzi. So we thought, well, maybe it's, you know, not so much appearances as function. And so, and what did you think of the wines? Um, gosh, 
that was the thing. We had our wine tasting group, but we could only taste Pinot once a year. And then you're out of wine. And then, you know, so we had to taste a lot of sparkling wines because Rollin was a member of the group. And, but you'd run out of stuff to taste. So we do, you know, things from wines from Italy, we do Burgundies, we do anything until the next Oregon Advantage rolled around. Um, the wines back then were, I remember David Alzheim, he had a, I think it was like an 81. And he'd kept it back for like three years because it would just had kind of closed down. Um, he'd initially released it, then he pulled it back, and then he released it again, and then he pulled it back again. And, um, but it had it at Nick's, and it was just phenomenal um, as far as its density and structure, and it's just really beautiful wine. Um, and so I learned early on that you couldn't just, you couldn't write somebody off on the basis of one vintage. You had to keep trying every vintage uh, because their style might change, or it was just a winemaking fluke. There were a few, a few wines back then that had, mm, maybe had some some slight flaws, VA or whatever. Um, and you don't you don't see that so much now. Uh, if you do see it now, the winemaker claims it's deliberate, <laughs> which is a little different. And you know the other thing. Everything that's changed now is it seems like everybody in the last, not everybody, but there's been this big push the last five or 10 years to sort of like revisit the ancient way of making wines. You know, we're gonna do amphorae or we're gonna do uh, ferment in concrete or, you know, and, um, but a lot of times the concrete's not even lined with epoxy. So you're getting the effect of the lime neutralizing and and you'll have winemakers say, well, you know, this compared to the stainless, the, the wine in concrete, it's, it seems like it's a softer wine. Well, yeah, it's a softer wine. I say, you know, you look at any old winery and you look at the concrete floor right below the, the bottom valve and there's a depression because it's eaten away all the lime. And that's got to be neutralized by the wine. So, um, yeah, so there's... I don't know, those, you know, there's just as many vineyard fads, probably more vineyard fads than there are winemaking fads. Um, but I've tried to avoid all those, I guess. I'm, I'm just kind of, it's getting harder, I think, to find, uh, find wines that are, I want to say, classically made, I guess. Um, even in Portland, the wine shops I sell to now, I have to, if I'm just getting a case of wine, I have to say, I don't like Brett. I don't, you know, don't want this, don't want that. You know, not too much oak, not since. And to have to tell somebody that you don't really want any bread in your wine is kind of, I think I've had one, one Burgundy that had just a little bit and it. it was an interesting, added some character to the wine, but usually it's, it gets out of control. It's just, just a flaw. Um, so obviously you've seen most of the growth of the Oregon wine industry since you've been here. So and besides just the pure size of it now, how else have you seen it change? What's what's different about Oregon wine now than when you started? Um, I think there's more of an emphasis on on just marketing 
there, there's more of an entertainment component than there used to be. Um, back when we started, you know, and Veritas was open, there was no tasting fee, you know, and then that became $5, and then it became $10, and then it became $20, and maybe $30, but you got that back if you purchased some wine, and then it became, you know, a sit-down affair, and you had somebody coming to your table with three or four wines, and then, you know, a little plate of crudités and whatnot, and and so I, I think the, the focus is a little more on you know, we're going to sell you a, a higher-end bottle, um, but the trade-off is that we acknowledge that you're only going to buy maybe one or two bottles. You're not a, going to walk out of here with a couple cases. Uh, so that's that's changed. Um, and so there's some of us, you know, like Cameron and myself, and stick in the muds, as it were, that just going to go with the old model. Um, and I don't know how the economics work out and something like that. You know, maybe it's maybe it's positive. But you talk to um, CPAs that do the taxes for a number of wineries, and they say, you know, out of every ten wineries, two of them are making money, and the other eight aren't. And um, I think people are happy in some cases just... Um, Having it as a as a hobby, it doesn't necessarily need to be something that's economically viable. Um, there's some pretty large, well-known wineries that aren't aren't making any money. You know, other other parts of their portfolio are, and maybe they use that to offset the losses. But um, for me, you you can't lose money every year. You know, you can I can lose money once by not making wine in 2020, but I can't do that for multiple years. So. so you talked earlier about sort of um, uh, sort of what's next, and, and, and so as you look ahead for yourself, uh, what would you like to do? What's going to happen with Thomas, and what, would you, what else would you like to do? Hmm. Um, well, that's a good question, and I've been wrestling with that for the last four or five years. Um, there was a wine shop. I just got an email from them the other day. They were talking about a, a winemaker who's now 90, and he's, he's got 75 vintages under his belt. And I thought, well, yeah, you could go that far, but <laughs> uh, like I say, I constantly ask John Paul. I can't ask Russ Rainey because, unfortunately, he passed away. But, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat. We're the same age, and... Uh, don't have any kids that want to take the business over uh, so yeah what do you do um, I really enjoy coming up here every day you know even if it's raining I enjoy being out in the vineyard um, it's almost like I feel that there's something missing in my day if I'm not up here uh, and but the flip side of that is I don't want to be up here living here because then I'd probably be working 24-7 so it's a it's a double-edged sword there um, I think they're you know going forward we are going to have to think about um, what are we going to do about uh, warming climate um, some people are we have it's kind of interesting how how large the picking window has gotten it used to be 
our picking window might be for Pinot might be 10 days and then you have storms coming and if you didn't get the fruit off by a certain date usually by mid-October forget it um, and now it seems like every year we're blessed you know and and to the point where people are picking they're worried more about acid and and picking earlier, picking in September um, to avoid the heat. This vineyard seems to go into limbo and I don't really get any flavors until um, around the third week of September. So we've been picking, gosh, since oh, I think 2009 was the last year we picked in September. We've been picking in October every year. Um, but um, with the road direction here running southeast and uh, the afternoon you know the heat peaks around four o'clock which is the same time the sun's about 90 degrees to the trellis so starting to get more and more sunburn every year and I compensate for that by pretty much dropping all the fruit on the west side um, so I think you know as long as as long as people aren't greedy um, you could still, you know, make wine um, 10, 15 years down the road. But the alternative is using shade cloth, and that's an environmental mess because it doesn't, doesn't last that long. You have to have some place to store it. And then how do you get rid of it? Um, back when, when everybody got phylloxera, it allowed people to kind of rethink their vineyard, and they could tighten up their trellis system, uh, put in new posts, go to metal instead of wood. Um, but now with warming, you know, everybody's, everybody's done that. And to change your road direction, that's a big deal. Uh, so you don't have, a, you don't have a, an economic necessity of flocks or where you have to rip everything out. So you don't have that luxury. But you look at, I've, I was looking a couple weeks ago uh, satellite photos of Napa Valley because they're perfectly flat so they can pretty much do any orientation regardless of uh, topography and uh, there are vineyards there um, that yeah they've changed 90 degrees and so I've thought about that you know but to go to go northeast southwest then I'd have a bit of a terrace and that engenders all sorts of difficulties just mowing what do you do in the in the vine row itself to keep the weeds down um, so yeah I don't I don't know it's gonna be I think that's the one thing that kind of keeps me going keeps my curiosity going is you know what's gonna happen because that's gonna be the next big hurdle we're all gonna have to deal with and and how do you approach that and so that's um, I look that I look at that as kind of more of a challenge than a a reason to hit the exits. Then, <laughs> um. last question for you. Um, obviously, uh, you've you've had this you've had this brand you've had this vineyard for for a good long time now. Uh, what are you proudest of, or what is your biggest accomplishment? Uh, I guess the thing that makes me proudest is when I hear I hear people that just um, you know, they'll, they'll take a wine of mine and put it into a tasting blind with a group of burgundies or, you know, 
put a take it take a wine to Burgundy, you know, give it to a French winemaker, and and relay the expression that they get. You know, because they're still, you know, Burgundy is still mm, kind of closed off in a way. I mean, some people are. Some people are curious as to what's going on here, and uh, others just need to have a good bottle placed in front of them and, and go, oh, oh. Um, certainly we're getting a lot more interest, I think not only from California, but from French, from just because the price of land is uh, so low here compared to Burgundy. I just wish that, you know, there were some wines that you could, some vintages you could freeze in time. And unfortunately that doesn't happen. I, the 2001 that I made, I think I could, I would be happy drinking that against pretty much any burgundy I've had in my life. Um, but it only lasted like that for about five years. And now it's, it's kind of fallen off the bell curve. 2002 is coming on, but, um, trying to figure out, you know, which vintage is at its peak when you only have a couple cases, that's a trick. Um, but it's fun, you know. And it always seems like the vintages that you had high hopes for aren't the ones that necessarily turn out to be the outstanding, you know, the wow-zow pow vintages. It's always a vintage that you think, oh, I remember crushing this and didn't seem like it had any particular outstanding qualities back then, but now it's just blossomed. So it's, yeah. Well, it's all the questions that I have for you. Okay. So is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything that we didn't cover here today no, that we should have I, covered? Yeah. No. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. You're I, welcome. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, sharing your story with us. And sure. we'll let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.